So this morning, we are in our second week of our series, uh, Moving Towards Gratitude, which is appropriate in this season, Moving Towards Thanksgiving, I guess. Uh, we're, one of our mantras is feels not factories, in which we recognize seasons are important. So looking towards seasons, we're focusing on gratitude for a little while, uh, which is good. Uh, one of the things Jason talked about last week as he kicked off the series and kind of started leading us down this path is that as we're talking about gratitude, what we want first and foremost to know is that we're not asking each other to try harder to be more thankful for things, right? I don't know about you, but anytime I've ever been told, like, I just need to, to try harder to do more, uh, it, it's hard to, like, follow through and actually see any fruit come from that. So our goal isn't, to, isn't that we would feel more, that we would manipu manipulate our emotions into to feeling more for, thankful for things, but rather asking ourselves, what are the steps that we can take in life to see more gratitude from the stuff that's already there? in our lives. And so in this process, uh, we're talking about and learning about, and then hopefully actually moving towards creating altars. Now, if you weren't here last week, the word altar can sound uh, strangely, mysteriously religious. Uh, but Jason did a really good job teaching through what altars were throughout the Old Testament. And basically what you had throughout the stories of the Old Testament, we see the people of God, is that when they would experience something happen in their life that was God's, a movement of God's goodness, that, that at some point in life they would say, God did something here. Uh, what they would do from that is they would start to mark that moment by making a permanent physical uh, construct, right, that would be left somewhere uh, to remember and to commemorate that thing that God did so that they would remember it in the future. And not only so that they would remember it themselves, but so that their future generations would remember their story and remember the faithfulness of that thing that God was doing, right? So they were building these altars to help them remember and to have gratitude moving forward throughout the future. And so uh, he actually, Jason, last week went through a, a survey of many of the accounts of altar building stories throughout the Old Testament. So again, if you miss that, or if you ever miss anything, you can catch it on our podcast at southbendcitychurch.com. You can find it there. It was really good last week. I recommend you go listen to that if you missed it. But at the end, he left us with a challenge to move towards altars ourselves and consider where, uh, what goodness might there be for us in this project. And these were the steps he left us with. First of all, asking, where and how have I encountered some generosity from God, right? What is the goodness that I've experienced? What is that thing uh, that I can be remembering? Second, then what materials or artifacts are associated with that experience, right? What is the physical stuff that's going on in that? Third, how could I make an altar in time or space with those materials or artifacts? A great example he gave of remembering the goodness uh, of his dog, Jack, that he had had, right? And the goodness that, uh, that of God that he experienced through Jack in his life. And so he was able to make a, an altar using uh, Jack, Jack's dog tags, right? And wear that around his neck as a way to remember the goodness of God that came through Jack. And then fourth, is there any way of making this a sacrifice? So the challenge is maybe we can find some altars that we can be building. And we gave the hashtag SBCC altars because this is a project we actually want to embrace and walk forward and wonder if this will lead us into gratitude or into recognizing gratitude that's already existing in our lives. So if you've had the opportunity already to create something, we'd love for you to share it with us. You can share it on social media using the hashtag. And in a couple of weeks, we'll probably have some sort of share or maybe even show and tell time in a gathering so that we can uh, kind of learn and grow and experience from each other's experiences together with these altars.
Um, you may wonder why I'm holding this. Uh, this is one of our altars uh, and my family. Um, it's juice. Um, but if you know my wife, uh, you know she is one of the most wonderful people in the world and also uh, one of the people in the world that is so full of hope. Uh, hope in the goodness of, of God and, uh, and, and hope and hopefulness for everybody she comes across that they would see more of God's goodness. Uh, that is just kind of a marker of who she is, but that has not always been her story and her experience. Uh, my wife, Robin, uh, earlier in life, uh, experienced lots of challenges in life, um, including addiction and despair and all sorts of other things that she was going through. Uh, and it, at one point in her life, um, she had never really come across God at all. It wasn't that, uh, for me, I grew up in God and religion and church was just all around me. That wasn't her story. And so it wasn't until her senior year of high school, uh, actually on New Year's Eve, she was invited to church for the very first time in her life, uh, attended a church for like an overnighter, youth lock-in kind of a thing. Uh, and in the morning of New Year's Day of her senior year of high school, uh, she was confronted with the goodness of God for the very first time. It it wasn't a sermon, it wasn't this altar call moment, it was just kind of this mystical encounter with God that she found herself overwhelmingly uh, filled with hope for the first time uh, in a way that uh, has stuck with her from that time forward. That was a monumental uh, turning point in her life where she was confronted with the goodness of God. And so uh, this has become our marker of that moving forward is that uh, we take sparkling juice and every year on New Year's Day, not New Year's Eve, uh, but on New Year's Day, we sit down and the two of us sit and uh, open, uh, open a bottle and take some cups. And as we drink together, she retells the story of her experience of life before and her experience of God that day so that we remember the goodness of God and what God has done. Uh, for us, it's just been a fascinating way uh, to mark and remember this uh, kind of really big monumental turning point in life. Uh, but today, I want to pivot a little bit from talking about those really big turning points that we mark to talking about something a little different with little different circumstances. Last week, Jason closed by leaving us with this verse in James. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change with the shifting shadows. Now, our sermons are often like deep dives into like a passage of scripture or a deep dive into a topic where we really go deep and kind of break things down. Uh, but today, I merely want to offer some reflection on this verse I spent the last week just kind of sitting in this verse and meditating on it and thinking about it. What I found is this verse is exceptionally simple, uh, but also I think really profound in helping us to understand God and gratitude. Uh, but there's a couple things we need to know if we're gonna understand this verse well. The first thing is that this is a part of a passage, the bigger passage, is trying to talk to us about the character of God. It's actually a defense of the character of God. Right, so people are going through life and they're asking themselves the question, what kind of a God is this God? Okay, we're talking about God, but who is God? Is God someone that is trustworthy? Can I count on God to be good? This is the question that they're wrestling with. And part of the reason they're asking this question is because the people that are asking the question are people who are not uh, swimming in these gifts. 
that this might be talking about. They are not overwhelmed with resources. The people that are asking these questions about God are people who are going through a lot of challenges and dealing uh, with a lot that they're missing out on life. And they're seeing other people that have a lot of these resources and they're starting to ask, how does this happen? How am I supposed to get through life and trust God when I have very little or nothing? And I look and other people seem to have so much. How am I supposed to trust God and, and what does God have to do? with that. We see this uh, from just some verses earlier in the same chapter where James is encouraging those who are going without, encouraging those who are struggling financially. And he says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant its blossom fails, falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. All right, now there's a lot to that verse. <laughs> I'm not gonna get into a lot of that, right? So there's a lot of different conversations we can have from that. But again, what it's emphasizing here is this passage about God and his goodness and the gifts that come from God is a passage that's coming to people that are already asking questions because of their lack. And what, the, uh, what James is saying here is that even when times are tough, God is with you and God can be trusted. But here's the encouragement that comes in that original verse in James 1.17. These people are, not, uh, are going without and they're trying to make ends meet and they're trying to figure things out and ask what kind of God is God. And James is painting God out saying God is the giver of good gifts. But he, what he doesn't say is, if you're trying to know what kind of God God is, God, don't worry because God is going to come and God is going to be so generous and God is gonna lavish you with all of the gifts and God is gonna come bring all of the things that you want, right? He does not promise them that God is the Santa Claus God, right? That's going to come and drop all of the packages off of all of the resources and all of the things that they would ever want or that they would ever dream of. This isn't an active participation thing that he's talking about. Instead, what he's saying is that every good and perfect gift that is, that already is, every good and perfect gift that already is, is from above. It's not about some future promise of generosity from God, but about recognizing the goodness that's already around us. The goodness that's already there in every big, and every little thing and attributing those things, those little bits of goodness to God. So the question for us today is how do we, how do we do in seeing the goodness of God around us even when things may not be fantastic? Right, even when our bank account may not seem like it's overflowing, even when things seem like they're not going our way, how can we look and see the goodness of God in the simple gifts that are already around us? So years ago when I was younger, it's a little scary, I started as a pastor probably too young. I was so immature, still immature, but I was even more, <laughs> I was even more immature at the time, which is a little scary. Um, had so much to learn about life. Uh, and at the previous church I was at, we ended up partnering with another church that was in town, and we started doing this midweek uh, prayer and share kind of service. So we were getting together with this other church, and part of their tradition that was not a part of my tradition was that there was testimony time, right? And in testimony time, you would take your turn, and you would stand up, and you would share about the goodness of God that you've experienced throughout that week so that everybody can be encouraged by that goodness. 
And I remember my first time at this church, we're going through and everything was interesting. I was like, oh, this is really cool that we're sharing this. And then this guy, Johnny, stands up uh, and Johnny just says, uh, I want to give God praise and testimony. I just want to thank God for getting me up out of bed today. And I almost felt like embarrassed for Johnny. Like, bro, you're like missing out on like, you're misunderstanding testimony time, right? Like testimony time is you share the awesome stuff that God is doing, right? You share like, like if you got a new job that week or like your mom was like cured of cancer or like whatever else, you know, like when you really have a story, like those are the things that we share, you know, uh, and not, not just that you got out of bed that week. I mean, everybody got out of bed today. That's not something, uh, that's not a story we're sharing. But I was concerned about this, but nobody else said a word in this situation. So we came back the next week, and we're going through once more. Again, Johnny stands up. I'm like, well, maybe, hopefully he has something good to say this time, you know? Uh, and he stands up and he says, I just want to give God glory for getting me out of bed today. I was like, is this all this guy says? <laughs> like, this is what he does week in, week out. Uh, and at this point, I'm assuming that somebody's going to come along, right? Like the elder is going to come along and like put their arm around like Johnny or whatever and be like, hey man, like, you know, like you're, missing, you're misunderstanding this whole thing. You've got to bring something to the table here if we're going to have this conversation about testimonies. But nobody did that. Instead, there was nods throughout the group and grunts of approval and, and empathy. And I was still dumbfounded trying to figure out what was going on. Week after week, we kept coming back. And week after week, Johnny stood up each and every time. And not once did he share anything but thank you, God, for getting me out of bed today. It was entirely consistent. And over time, what I began to see was that maybe Johnny was the one that properly understood testimony time. And maybe I was the one that just simply didn't get it. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my family and I got to go to Disney World. Uh, any Disney fans in here? All right, any like not Disney fans in here? Yeah, yeah, this is where that's going. Uh, it, so we went, uh, my kids are 13, 11, and five, and we went to Disney World and it was magically complicated. Uh, first of all, uh, we, it was great. We, we survived the trip down there. Uh, it was my wife and I and our kids in a minivan for 18 hours on the open road with my parents, like all together. As they tell this story, it's surviving their uh, stubborn son with road rage issues. But, uh, so they also had their adventures as well. Uh, but we got there and it was worth it. Those van rides were worth it for Disney, right? Uh, except for when you get there and it's like suffocatingly crowded still, right? Like you can barely move without bumping into people because there's so many people around. That like makes me want to crawl out of my skin when there's that many people around. Um, and it's, it was good except for like it's 90 degrees and muggy there, right? So you're just like sweating to death the entire day. They don't put these things on the flyers, people. Right, so you're going through trying to deal with the weather, weather, and it was great except for, you know, waiting in line for 80 minutes with my five-year-old to visit a princess, not ride a roller coaster, you know? <laughs> it was great except for that. And then when you actually get to the end of the line after those 80 minutes of waiting and your daughter experiences, uh, your daughter who longs to, literally longs to be a mermaid in life, meets the little mermaid or hero and then realizes that her fins are actually made of sequins instead of for real and you get that face. <laughs> like, 
that literally came from the disappointment of understanding the sequencer there. Um, but then, you know, there's things going for it because you get to see uh, the Millennium Falcon in its native habitat, right? Any Star Wars fans in here? Yeah. Like, it is magnificent to get to see this thing up close in its native habitat if you understand that the native habitat includes thousands of American tourists and it actually feels more like this <laughs> with people running into you everywhere and feels decidedly less Star Wars-y. But then I found my guy that made me feel a lot better about Disney. Everybody's walking around and they've got their like Disney themed shirts on, you know, celebrating the week. And this one guy, you, I knew he was a dad. I didn't see any kids with him, but you just know, right? Because he's got this Disney shirt on with a mouse ears and it said most expensive week ever. <laughs> it's like my man, <laughs> he gets it. You can call me a Disney Scrooge, and that's fine. It's just, it's just not my thing, right? Like all those people in the heat, and it just is what it is, right? Uh, you can yell at me afterwards. But then you get home, and you go back through, and you look at the pictures, right? And then you see that there's also this picture. And this is the moment where my Mickey met that Mickey, and this is the exact moment when my Mickey told that Mickey that her name was Mickey, and Disney Mickey responded in that way, which got a giggle out of my Mickey, and suddenly it's magical, right? Isn't this place amazing that you can have these experiences? Scientists would actually say that that is a pretty common experience that that is nothing surprising. In fact, they've done studies where they had people go to Disney and at every 20 minutes throughout the day, right, they had them rate on a scale of one to 10 of how uh, much pleasure they were feeling at that point in time, how happy they were about their experience, right? Uh, so on a scale, you know, it's like, okay, at 8.20, you're standing in line, you know, like, what do you feel like right now? At 8.40, what are you feeling right now? 9.20, what are you feeling right now? All throughout the day, uh, asking people how they felt and rating it on a scale of one to 10. And then they took those numbers for each person and they added them up and they found the average that you would think represents the average happiness of how somebody felt during their time at Disney, right? Then what they did is they went back three months later and they asked people to rate on a scale of one to 10 how enjoyable their time at Disney was. And can you guess what they found out? They found out that there was absolutely no correlation whatsoever between how people felt about their trip looking back on it versus how they actually felt at any point in time while they were there. There was no correlation whatsoever between overall experience and how we see it looking back. And what science tells us is that we tend to only remember the most surprisingly painful or surprisingly magical moments of life, and we forget the bulk of the rest of our lived experience. So we go through life day in and day out, experiencing one thing after another, and we tend to forget all of that experience and only remember the couple of things that stand out as extremely good or extremely bad. Now, this works well for Disney because they're banking on the fact that they can supply you with one or two magical moments during your time there that will make you forget all the waiting online and all the heat and all the food prices and everything else. And that's fascinating. But real life isn't Disney World. Real life isn't Disney World. The real world is as likely to deal as much painful moments for us 
as magical moments for us. And if we tend to only remember the big things, then we can be trapped in our search for these mountaintop moments, constantly just trying to avoid the pain of the big painful moments, wondering when, if ever, the next big moment of magic will happen for us. And many times we can go seasons, or in many cases of people around the world, lifetimes without these big, magical, mountaintop moments. So what if these moments never or rarely happened? Are we destined to live life full of disappointment? Or maybe we're missing out when we let the rest of the story go. Maybe we're missing out on the goodness in the mundane, the goodness in the day-to-day, the goodness in the unremarkable. I wanna take you to one last passage. Uh, This passage is from Paul's sermon on the, or not Sermon on the Mount, (laughs) Paul's sermon uh, at Mars Hill in Athens, right, which has become popular kind of in Christian culture for a lot of different reasons. Uh, And Paul's in Athens talking to the people of Athens, which are highly educated, typically. Uh, They believed in lots of different gods and were very curious about conversations. And the conversation also doesn't just involve the average person, it involves two groups of philosophers, the Epicureans, and the Stoics were were involved in this conversation and they had lots of opinions as well. And they had actually taken Paul to the place called Mars Hill, uh, to Areopagus. Uh, And as Paul's looking around, he's noticing all these altars to all of these different gods and he sees one known as the altar to the unknown God. And Paul begins to tell them about it, uh, about this altar to the unknown God. And we see his story of what he's talking about as he's describing the God they may not know. And this is Acts 17, 24 through 29. Paul says this. The God who made the world and everything is in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in these ornate temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else that echoes to James, right? Every good and perfect gift goes on. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. No, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So there's a lot going on here, again, in this passage. And actually, because Paul is kind of arguing with Epicureans and Stoics, uh, if you understand what the Epicureans and the Stoics are really about, you understand that this is a complex philosophical argument. And that gets me excited because I was a philosophy major. So if you ever want to ask me questions about the depths of that, you can do that. And I can find you somebody who actually understands what's going on there. (laughs) I can recommend you talk to somebody because I don't remember any of it. But I do know that there's a lot more depth going on here uh, that could be talked about. But just to simplify this down, uh, these philosopher groups, they believe the gods, if they existed, to be distant and unreachable. That if the gods exist, they must be so great that why would they bother their time with us? 
why would they bother even interacting with us and why would they even be concerned with our prayers? Why should we even spend any time trying to act with them, interact with them? In fact, the gods are so great, the best we can really do is build these big grand temples to them uh, full of all this ornate jewelry and decorations and we can build these, these statues to them that represent them out of gold and silver and maybe in trying to connect with this ornate greatness we can intersect a little bit with God in the midst of that. But Paul comes in and he wants to tell them no, that God is not distant or only in the grand things. I love the end of verse 27 there. He says, he, God, is not far from any one of us. He's not far, like you say, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. God and and God's goodness is not far from us because God's goodness is in life itself and in our breath and in our movements and in our existence. I think what he's saying here is that God is even near in our getting out of bed in the morning, right? Just in getting out of bed and living life because the God is the one who made us in his image and breathed life into us. We experience the goodness of God. I have one final thought. We have this concept in our culture of the golden days, right? The golden days that we look back on, reflect on entire seasons of life, that as we look back, we see to have reflected God's goodness, right? And as we talk about the golden days, Like, typically, we're not talking about these uh, mountaintop success moments, right, where everything, like, just kind of worked out and we got our our biggest uh, moment, our biggest fame. Typically, when we're talking about the golden days that we're looking back on as full of goodness, it's entire seasons, but the goodness is in more simple things, more grounded, more goodness in the day-to-day that we remember, more goodness in the unremarkable, Often the golden days we look back on are these stable periods of life just before things got crazy, right? Man, those were the great days. Or the golden days were seasons where we actually still had our health, right? Or the golden days were times when our loved ones were still around us, maybe before the kids grew up and moved all across the country or whatever it is. Or maybe the golden days were simply days before we experienced tragic loss and we just still had our loved ones with us. These seasons, we look back on these seasons filled with goodness and we're desperate to relive them. But for any season that we look back on as the golden days, the golden years of our experience of God's goodness, the reality is that we once lived those years in ways that likely didn't feel so golden, right? Those moments you look back on that you miss, did you feel like those were golden moments in those times? When your kids were with you and things were stressful and they were whining all the time, did they feel like golden moments? Or does it only become golden down the road as we look back on them? James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Not just the mountaintop moments, but the goodness and the mundane, the unremarkable. 
If only we were able to see it. So we come back to the challenge then of altars. As we consider SBCC altars, what if we also considered altars centered around the goodness of the unremarkable? What if we considered building an altar to getting out of bed every day and just being able to go on with life or to that morning cup of coffee and the goodness that is offered in that? What if we considered an altar to having food in our refrigerator regularly or the moments when our children and our parents are still with us? What would it look like for us to commemorate those unremarkable moments that ultimately carry some of the most meaning? Uh, Studies have shown that staycations are actually the most uh, happiness and health-bringing type of vacation. Uh, This is not opinion. They're having studies that are showing this, right? Uh, It actually brings the most health into people's life to take a staycation instead of a vacation. And it's not simply about the fact that in vacations, so many times we're spending tons of money and traveling and exhausted from all that stuff. Uh, One of the things that they say is so health-bringing about staycations is that you end up experiencing more goodness in the world around you that's able to carry on even after the staycation is over, right? You start to see your neighborhood in a different way, or maybe you find a different restaurant that you haven't noticed before, or maybe you have the time to actually go and explore and find a nook down by the river where it's just so peaceful at the right time of the day, and you just see the glory of God in the middle of that, right? In staycations, we become aware that there actually is goodness in the world around us that then can continue to feed us throughout the rest of life that we go through. And too often in vacations, we're telling our brain that goodness is that thing that we go away to and get the goodness over there. And then when we come back, we come back and we leave that goodness that we experienced behind. There's something really important about the day today. What if we took that staycation type approach to altars to say, how can we look for the goodness, the every good and perfect gift that's already around us, instead of waiting, wondering when or if that next mountaintop moment will ever come. Dan and the team are gonna come. And as they come, I want us to reflect on this. Here's the question. What are some ways we could challenge ourselves to recognize the goodness and just the simple little unremarkable things around us?
as you go this week, may you go with the encouragement that there is a God who loves you deeply, who can be trusted, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. God is not a God who is distant, only to be found in fancy churches or mountaintop moments, but he's there, God's goodness is there as we get out of bed each day and in every breath we take and in the goodness of life itself. Grace and peace be with you. Have a great day.